When I was a kid, my grandfather would often have this hypothetical outline (laughs) of what he would do if he won millions of dollars. Now, I don't know what his plan was to win that, but he had a plan for it if he did. And he intended to pay off his own debts, but also the debts and expenses of his children, too. And his plan highlights why so many of us uh, who have loving family members would be excited if one of them came into newfound wealth. We, of course, would be happy for them and themselves, but we know that not only they, but also we, would have the opportunity to reap uh, from the rewards. And that raises a question for us from Galatians three fifteen to 20 which is where we're going to focus ourselves today. In a few, we're, we're, we're zooming in on a few phrases that are actually very tricky. Uh, and I do, it would be easy to skate over some of these things and just pretend they weren't there. Uh, but I kind of think it's my job to help unpack some of even the trickiest things for us. So I want to try to synthesize some, some doctrinal things that bring clarity to a couple of, of things going on in these verses. So in, in verse 16, why is it, why is it helpful news that this promised covenant was made to Abraham and to his offspring? What good does it do us to know that Abraham's descendant one in particular had a covenant promise from God. Now, the answer is, as even verse 16 has already shown us, that God made this promise to Abraham's one descendant, who is namely Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to unpack the further significance of that as we as we go, it's easy for us to get caught. Though, here's the, here's the thing. I think it's easy for us to get caught on the obvious point that Paul was connecting the Abrahamic covenant to Christ as the, as we considered, as the substance of the covenant of grace and miss something a little bit more niche, a little bit more specific and easy to pass by. Think, think about it for, for just a second. Paul, Yes, Paul is highlighting Christ in the Abrahamic covenant, and we expect the apostles to do that with the Old Testament. But more precisely, Paul argued that God made his promised covenant, made a covenant with Abraham and this offspring, who is Christ. Just to cut out the, the middle section there, God made a covenant with Christ. Now, as we've marched, we've been marching through Galatians, right? Studying this book about uh, Paul addressing issues in the Galatian church and, and seeing how he marshaled a tremendous explanation of justification by faith alone with the purpose of promoting unity in the church as factions were arising about even what the true conditions for salvation are. 
So he's giving a, a big, long doctrinal explanation of justification by faith to bring the church back together, get them eating at the same table again. His main point in Galatians 3 and 4 was that since God first made the promised covenant with Abraham, well, because that was first, the law covenant under Moses could not have added, could not have added the condition of obedience on top of faith for justification. Now, here's here's one of the things, the, the interaction, the back and forth between examining texts of Scripture and explaining doctrines is a continual circle. It's back and forth. Biblical texts give us our doctrines. And yet, having knowledge of doctrines that the texts give us helps bring clarity, sometimes to really tricky, complicated passages that the meaning doesn't jump out to us. And that's the case with one of the trickiest parts here in Galatians 3, namely verse 20. Maybe, maybe you caught it and how it's a bit of an odd thing to drop there. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. How does that second phrase, but God is one, help what Paul is saying? And that's, that's what I'm trying to explain this morning. And so we're going to pause somewhat. Hopefully you already see how what I'm going to unpack comes out of a a difficulty in the text, but we're going to pause and reflect upon another doctrine. We've considered uh, in this series, even we've considered the covenant of works between God and Adam, which had the premise of perfect obedience for Adam. And we've considered the covenant of grace that one way of salvation and how it has always been by faith in Christ ever since the fall. And now we're going to consider the, the third and final sort of overarching categorical covenant that Reformed theology has held, the covenant of redemption. And this doctrine, to give you an overview, this doctrine teaches that the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted together concerning the role that each would play in accomplishing the salvation of the elect. So so let's put that more concretely. Right, Only the Son became incarnate. And that role of appointing Him as our mediator owes to the covenant of redemption. It is the, the covenant of redemption is the eternally decreed foundation for the covenant of grace, providing the reason why Christ earned our salvation as the second Adam and why the Spirit applies that work to, specifically, the elect. Our main point, our main point is that the covenant of redemption provides one of the deepest reasons for Christian comfort and assurance. This doctrine provides one of the deepest reasons for Christian comfort and assurance. Now, as we tend to do in this sort of sermon, uh, we're going to take this up in four questions. So the first question 
is what in Galatians 3, what in Galatians 3 indicates this covenant of redemption, this intra-Trinitarian covenant. So if we, and this this is just thinking about how this rolls out of what's happening in the text. If we start in verse 15, we see that Paul framed this discussion about history and about salvation history within the realm of covenants. Then, verses 16 and 18, he noted that God's promised covenant to Abraham meant, since it came first, meant that the covenant at, the law covenant at Sinai could not overturn the premise of justification by faith alone since that law covenant came so much later. Rather, rather, for your salvation, the promised covenant was foundational, is still foundational. But catch it again, catch it again, that God, in those verses, that God made this promised covenant to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. Christ, according to his humanity, was born in Abraham's lineage. And the true and proper recipient of this promised covenant is Jesus Christ, ultimately. How so? Right? But we'll get there. But the issue is God covenanted with Christ. And as we, so we, we've covered verses 15 to 18, uh, the last time we were in this book. And so we're now kind of zooming in on verses 19 and 20, which confirms the point that I've just tried to highlight. Paul refers to this singular offspring again, noting that the promise, the promised covenant was made to him. But in contrast, to this promised covenant, which God gave directly to Abraham. There wasn't somebody in between, right? God gave the covenant right to Abraham. In contrast, the law covenant at Sinai came from God to angels, to Moses, to the people of Israel. It was mediated. Moses being the primary intermediary, right? So there's a level, whereas Abrahamic covenant was direct, this one is mediated. Verse 20, Moses' presence as an intermediary in the Sinai covenant requires that there be more than one party involved in this arrangement. Namely, Moses is the the middleman standing between God on the one hand and Israel on the other. That seems obvious. That's easy enough to understand. There's Moses standing between two other parties. And then Paul drops this little line, but God is one. It's a true state. It's easy enough to understand on its own, right? That's the Shema. We believe as Christians, God is one in essence, three in persons. But how does that contribute to the point here? In contrast to the law covenant, going from God through angels and Moses, then to the people, 
four parties involved. The promised covenant was from God the Father to God the Son. The one God in three persons, and God is one. And so God covenanted a promise to Christ, who is God the Son, God being at both ends of the covenant. There's no intermediary needed, because God is one. Now this is tricky. I know this is tricky, but we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this as we go. I'm just trying to show you the textual reason for talking about this. But this arrangement secures the foundation of justification by faith alone. Because God covenanted a promise to Abraham's offspring, because of that, no other person along the way could divert that promise. It had to come to fulfillment in this offspring. And Christ has secured all the benefits of that promise for his people. In this outlines the issues in Galatians uh, about a covenant between God and Christ. But we, we need to spell out more specifically what this covenant of redemption is. So we've seen how Galatians gives rise to this discussion, and now we want to think about our next question. Just simply, this is a weird idea, isn't it? That there's a covenant among the Godhead? And so I want to ask more. Is there a covenant between God and Christ? And I want to think about this throughout the scripture. We've already seen to some degree in Galatians 3, 15 to 20, how it's specifically noted a covenant made with Abraham and the offspring Christ. And this, this matches, doesn't it? This, this specific section matches what God says about the Savior in Isaiah 49, 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, talking to the Messiah, to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. The Savior is given as a covenant. But... Let's push further, right? That, that sort of just ties Christ's work to a covenantal framework. But let's see if we can make sense of a covenant between persons of the Godhead. So let's think about Zechariah 6, which we read. Uh, and, and how verses 9 to 13 in that chapter are about the branch Right? A prophecy about the Messiah, the one who will build the Lord's temple, which we know from the New Testament scriptures is the church. Right? Verse 13, our key verse uh, for, for this point. It is he, namely the branch, the messianic branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear Royal honor, so he'll be a king, right? You see why we focus so much on God's kingship earlier in the service. The Messiah will have royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Whose throne? Where is he? He's in the temple of God. 
This king will rule from God's throne. Let's keep that in mind, right? And there shall be a priest. Notice this is about to join, combine the royal and priestly offices in the Messiah. This is neat stuff, I, I think, right? The one person will bear the royal and the priestly office and be on, on his throne. Whose throne again, right? Meaning this royal priest sits on God's throne in the temple. And here you go. The council of peace shall be between them both. The royal one and the priest are the same person. So this is between that Messiah, between the branch and God. There's a council, a covenant between God and this royal priest and Messiah. Okay, so maybe that's, maybe we're, we're picking very detailed in, in a prophetic passage, but can we confirm that? That might seem like I've reached for something. Let's think about Luke chapter 2, verse 29. <laughs> Christ said to the disciples in this verse, now according to the ESV, right, now I need to highlight something, but according to the ESV, it says, I, Jesus is speaking, I assign to you, note that word assign, assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. The, the trouble here uh, is that this verb assign is the Greek word for making a covenant. In in numerous Old Testament passage in the in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where God makes a covenant, Jeremiah thirty one in the New Covenant jumps to mind. It's repeatedly used. This verb indicates God making a covenant. The Greek noun for it's linked. Um, the Greek noun for covenant is diatheke, and this verb is diatitheme. It's like when we say something like, I'm going to live my life. You know, you've got, you've got the same word there used as a verb and a noun. Live and life are the same. I'm going to run a run. That's not as smooth. <laughs> uh, this is God's word for covenanting a covenant. And Christ covenants a kingdom to his disciples Just as, here's the important bit, the Father covenanted a kingdom to him. That sort of confirms our reading of Zechariah 6, right? The Messiah is going to be a king and a priest. And the Father has covenanted with the Council of Peace. And here the Father has covenanted a kingdom to Christ. So there is a covenant among the Godhead concerning the plan of salvation. That's, is there a covenant? Hopefully the details were useful, but the biblical answer is yes. And now we come to our next question. What are the terms of this covenant? Right? Uh, in other words, what's happening in, in this covenant? And I want to think together about Philippians 2. So if you, if you, I should have put that on your order of service, I'm sorry, I didn't. But if you want to flip that up on, on your phone or, or open your copies of God's Word to Philippians 2, let's think about verses 5 to 11, which provides us a good perspective 
on this covenant, at least as it concerns the Son. So, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and here, here's where, uh, in the next bit, here's where Christ's covenantal role kicks in, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What just happened there? In eternity, right, the, the timeless life of God, the triune God decreed to bring the elect salvation, and in that decree, the Son's role was to become incarnate. Although he is one essence with the Father and Spirit, God is one, Galatians 3.20 tells us. Despite that, unlike Adam, unlike Adam as the head of the covenant of works, who gave in to the serpent's temptation, what was it? To become like God? In contrast to Adam, the son, the second Adam, didn't hold on to his natural equality with God, but emptied himself by assuming a human nature to become a servant. Paul continued, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. The Son wasn't obedient in eternity. He became obedient in the Incarnation, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul has already noted in our main study in Galatians 3, 10 to 12, the covenant of works requires perfect obedience. We can't have everlasting life, justification by works, because we're sinners. We've broken the The covenant of works requires perfection to earn rewards from God. We all owe that obedience to God by perfectly fulfilling the law if we're to enter his heavenly kingdom. But because we're sinners, not only can we not meet that obligation, we're also under the death penalty because of our transgression. On the other hand, God God does not owe obedience and cannot suffer But humanity needs to do both if we're to enjoy everlasting communion with our Maker. And so, because of that, because God can't suffer and because humanity needs to obey and pay our penalty, so God the Son came in human likeness, in a human nature, assumed a human nature, Christ walked among us to become obedient for us, to do what Adam should have done, fulfill the law on behalf of his people and bear the curse of our sin in our nature, all to earn our salvation. And so Paul concludes in Philippians, therefore, and catch that, that's not just moving ahead, therefore, Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? Right? And what's it doing here? It's inferring from Christ's 
perfect obedience from his fulfillment of his covenantal task, inferring from his obedience that God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ fulfilled his role, fulfilled his role in earning salvation for us and bearing his curse, bearing our curse, God highly exalted him. Here's what, according to the covenant of redemption, Christ merited. If you notice that word shows up a lot at the end of so many of my sermons, Christ has earned your citizenship in heaven. This is why I say that. And this is why I say it so often. Christ has merited his re-exaltation at the, as the one bearing God's own name. He is God. And God is one after all. Paul here was quoting Isaiah 45, 22 to 25 to show Christ's reward of, of being exalted and, and revealed as truly God's son again. Revealed again, not, yeah. But this passage also ends in Isaiah 45. This passage ends saying, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Christ is not only Abraham's true offspring, that one offspring, but also the true Israel, and all united to him are justified by the promise that comes to fulfillment in him. As Christ earned, as he merited his re-exaltation as the second Adam and Savior of his people, so too he merited your justification if you believe in him. It's not hanging in the balance. The Son of God has earned it for you, bought it, and gives it to you freely. Acts Acts 2.33, I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you. That's going to stop just shortly and we'll ponder more personally. But Acts 2.33 connects the Spirit into this covenant of redemption for our salvation, saying, being therefore, and, and notice how it follows right from what we just considered in Philippians 2, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and, here we go, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Part of Christ's exaltation was to leave the Spirit again in a new way as his reward. More specifically, he was glorified and has entered the new creation to prepare it for us. He has that spiritual body of 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two to 45, an incorruptible glorified existence which he will grant to us at the resurrection. What Adam should have done, Christ has done. Note that Acts says that because Christ received this reward, he has poured out the work of the gospel ministry to bring people to faith in him. 
So the Spirit works to bring the elect to Christ. Okay, so what, what was this covenant? What were, what were the terms of it? I know there was a lot of detail there. Christ earned your salvation. That's the sum. Final question. How does the covenant of redemption help us? How does this doctrine provide for us in the Christian life? And let's, let's circle back to that opening anecdote about a family member coming into new riches. The same applies here. In the covenant of redemption, the Father gave the elect to the Son. He's now our elder brother. Gave us to him to be those for whom Christ would live, die, and rise, and intercede. His work was for those whom the Father gave to him. In John 17, 1 and 2, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, exalt Him, right as in Philippians 2. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, His kingship, Psalm 2, and then underline, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given Him. Jesus is brother who has merited all the riches of heaven and has done so for you. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be formed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You're the family of God if you believe in Jesus. This older brother performed all righteousness for his people to secure their life with God in everlasting rest. He did all of this so that he could freely give you everlasting life. And I want to connect the dots Right, from, from a lot of dense things that we've considered, hopefully the, the main points are very clear, but I want to connect the dots to our, our main claim at the beginning that the covenant of redemption is one of our deepest reasons for comfort and assurance. So just, I just want to make sure that that is crystal clear, why that's the case. I, I don't think we always fully understand the mechanics of how forgiveness works. We get the basics. I know that. There's no question that Christians understand Jesus died for your sins and that's why you're forgiven. But I just want to push more specifically. I think we can often feel, even within that, and knowing that, I, I think we can often feel as though we're halfway on the hook for our failures unless we repent adequately enough 
or pull it back together quickly enough. But, and you know, fill in the blank if it's a different kind of mindset. But I think that there is a common sense of I'm still sort of on the hook for the things I've done. But, but the covenant of redemption shows us how, not simply that, but how forgiveness truly works. In, in eternity, in the, in the timeless life of God, before creation was in being, in eternity, the, the elect, you believer, were given to Christ. In, and what that means is, in eternity, the Son took responsibility even then for every sin you would ever commit. Before you even existed, Christ took responsibility to reconcile you with God. Now let's, let's illustrate this to kind of bring home how it works out. Okay, let's think about a debt metaphor. If you are under a crushing amount of debt, perhaps, perhaps that newly rich family member offers to cover your debts. And there's two different ways that that can play out. One, maybe, maybe the payment still comes due to you. Maybe you still get that bill. In the post, in your email, whatever it is, maybe you still get the bill every month. And what simply happens is your family member writes a check each time that the bill must be paid and and sends it in your stead. That's one way that that could happen. And that leaves you kind of feeling like, oh, I am still on the hook. It's still my name. And like if he doesn't come through... Well, I've still got to do something. That's one way, and I think that's the way that we sort of assume that forgiveness works. I'm kind of still, I'm sort of still on the hook before God, but Christ sends forgiveness my way as I need it. The alternative, the alternative to that way, is that you and your family member, you go, you both go into the bank that holds your debts. And you change formally, officially, legally, all of your debts into their name. In this case, you're no longer on the hook for this at all. This family member has taken responsibility for everything you owe. Someone else has made themselves liable for the whole payment and you're no longer connected to it. And believers, that is what Jesus Christ has done for you from eternity. In the covenant of redemption, he took responsibility, put it all in his name to pay for the sins of his elect. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He became sin for us. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. The wrongdoings of every believer, and we might add here, just as a reminder, Old and New Testament believers, all of our wrongdoings were credited to Christ as our mediator in this eternal covenant of redemption. When the Spirit brings you to faith, you are connected to this family member who assumed responsibility for all your debts and has paid them all in full. In this way, in this way, the covenant of redemption is the eternal foundation, the timeless foundation outside creation for the covenant of grace, which plays out in history as the elect come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is why, right? This is why this eternal foundation for the covenant of grace is why the larger catechism 31 asks, with whom is the covenant of grace made? And answers, sort of inverting the order, but very much striking as Galatians 3.16, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. You, believer, are the offsprings of Abraham, his sons and daughters, the father of our faith, because you are united by faith to Abraham's one descendant, Jesus Christ. Christian, do you you see how rich this hope is and how how full God's love for you must be. This is not just an academic doctrine. This is where it comes home. God's love must be abundantly and aboundingly full for this to be the case. From, from the eternal depths of our triune God's being, the Father, Son, and Spirit decreed your rescue, assigned the missions that ground your salvation, and planned to execute them in your life, believer. LCPC, one of the things that I hope that you take away from however long I get to be a pastor for you, is that doctrine is the lifeblood of the Christian life. And here we see, you cannot do it if you do not understand God and what he has done for you. And here we see that the Holy Trinity is the heart that circulates that lifeblood. As we consider the riches of God's covenant of redemption, we see an endless, boundless, timeless... God God cannot stop... Catch this, believers. God cannot stop loving you because He never started in the timeless life of God. 
we see an endless love that swallows us up in his arms of grace. Let's pray. Father God, we consider often things that are beyond us. We consider things that are above us. Our minds cannot contain them. And we pray even more than that we might understand some of these things. We pray that their significance for us, that, that our hearts will not contain them. That we would overflow with love and amazement, having caught even a, a tiny glimpse of the depths of your being and what you have decreed in order to be good to your people. And we pray that this would captivate us, fuel our lives of worship and devotion, that we might praise the God who is this God, covenanting even amongst the triune self for the sake of your people. And God, your people are often in need. And so because the gospel tells us that Christ intercedes for us and that we should bring our concerns to you, we do so now. We do ask for our church as we are in this period of vacancy. We pray first and foremost that whatever is in the future for us, that you will make the ministry of this church faithful, that in this spot, in in the pulpit of this congregation, the truth of God and his deeds for his people would ring forth faithfully until the sun returns to collect us. We pray that you preserve that legacy here. And we pray that you use it to build your people. We pray that you use it to build the people who are here in faith, in depth, that they would be equipped to walk with you through whatever might come their way.